Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is this is unbelievable. Sir, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Chad, I love you, man. It's an honor to be here, and I, I wish we were together in person, but this, we'll, we'll make it do this way. The, hey, the next time we are together in person, I vow on this podcast, whatever workout you want to do, I'm all the way in. Uh, let's do it. We'll make sure we do it at your house rather than mine because uh, your place is more fun to come to than where I live. You, uh, you have an open invitation. The last time I saw you in Los Angeles, by the way, was at the Forum at yep. Sunday service uh, when Kanye was doing that. What an incredible time and season that was. And just in, amazing to see so many people I don't think would have been in church that Sunday. No, you're exactly right. I, I think a vast majority of people that were there certainly wouldn't have been in church otherwise. And it was, it was, that was a special event. It really was. It was an incredible time. And I just, you know, I have to say this. I have such a tremendous amount of respect for you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your podcast. Um, I cannot uh, tell you how many times I've listened to your podcast and just been so impacted by um, your thinking, um, mm-hmm. just who you are. So I just want to first start by just saying thank you for being the leader and the person that you are, the father, the husband. Just you're such an inspiration to me. Thank you. Well, it means a lot. I have, the, I have the same respect for you, just the way you, you love your family. And you're one of the more intentional leaders. Everybody on the street, when they talk about you, they're kind of like, going, yeah, Chad's got game. Yeah, that guy, you know, he's not, not just a preacher, but he's, he's also, he's got, he's got a lot of wisdom. And, and so it's, it's, it's really an honor to, to share with your audience. And, and I appreciate your friendship so much. I, I appreciate it greatly. I want to jump right in because you've got a new book. Yes. It's coming out. Lead like it matters. Mm-hmm. And I want to start with that word it. Yes. You wrote years ago the it factor, the it book already. Uh-huh. And, and this yes, is kind yes. of a, a, a version two, which you know about mm-hmm. different versions because of the app, of course. So this is a version two of the book. <laughs> exactly. Talk, talk to me about a leader. How do you know when they have it and how can you get it? How can you develop that this it that you're talking about? Sure. If I can tell a little bit of the story behind it. So the, I wrote the book It in 2008. This book is over 50% of it's new. So it's expanded and revised. And and so if you go all the way back to like 2005, 2006, Chad, we had at the time, we were one of the churches amongst many that were pioneering kind of the multi-site movement of churches. And so we had probably, I can't even remember, 11, 12, 13 different locations at the time. And we we were really confused because it, what we saw didn't make sense. In our culture, we build almost the same exact building from city to city. It's the same footprint, same look, same colors. If you woke up in the middle of one, you wouldn't know what state you were in. And so the buildings were, were, were almost similar. The worship style is almost identical, often do the exact same songs. The teaching uh, is is the same everywhere. The staff is hired through the same culture, tr- trained in the same systems. And so all the contributing factors should have created a very similar result, but the opposite was happening. The results were wildly varied. And like literally where I live, there's one church that's seven miles away from the other. And one of them, when you'd walk up to it, there was like a, like an anticipation, a, 
it, like like a Zoe Church, like there's a buzz, there's a feel, there's a hit, there's a there's a vibe, you, there's faith in the air, and you could just feel it. It's, it's like it was it was almost you could almost hear it visible. We'd walk to the uh, seven miles down the road to another church, and same contributing factor, same building, same music, and the vibe was different. There was you couldn't feel the faith, and so what we started saying, Chad, was kind of like going, ah, this one, this one has it. This one doesn't have it. And and then we started looking at our teams because we have, like you, we have multiple teams. If you could have a missions team or you could have, you know, you might have a finance team. You have all these different teams. We'd say some of them have this something, this, some of them have it, some of them don't. So we, we started to ask ourselves, what is it? And study it. What is it? And the answer ultimately came, and I acknowledge in the book, is that we don't exactly know. Like there's no way to specifically define what it is. Some people, some Christians would say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. I've been in businesses that have it and those that haven't. So it's more than the Holy Spirit. It's, it's just something, it's, it's impossible to describe, but it's also impossible to miss. You know it when it's there, you know when it's not. And so then we started looking at it going, okay, what are, if we can't tell exactly what it is, like one person can't bring it, but the wrong person can kill it. Like literally the wrong person can kill it. So just because you have it doesn't mean you won't get it. I mean, just because you have it doesn't mean you won't keep it. And if you don't have it, doesn't mean you can't get it. We all these, you know, one church may be like really spiritually on fire for four, five, six years, and then something happens and they're not as much. And so we looked at what are the factors that contribute to it. And there are seven that we talk about very specifically in the book. And then we looked at the key ingredient above all else is that if an organization, a team, a business, a church has it, you're never going to see them have it without the leader having it. Then we started studying what are the qualities in the leader that contributes to it. So it's kind of a, you know, you ask, what is it? And the answer is, I wish I could tell you. I wrote a whole book telling you I can't tell you exactly what it is. But we do know there are things that contribute to it and there are things that take away from it. And so that's what we kind of do a deep dive into and so that we can work on doing the right things that bring about those special intangible results that just honor God and make it fun to be a part of. I love that. And I, I, I love that one of the, the first chapters, if I'm not mistaken, is on vision. And you talk about these leaders that, that have it. They're, all, they're always probably a common denominator in why it made it to the top seven of these chapters is that they're visionary leaders. How do you, mm-hmm. how would you describe it? How do you write it in the book that if, you, if I wanted to create a vision statement or for mm-hmm. a lot of leaders you know, they're inheriting an organization or inheriting yes, a yes. ministry. They got to refresh mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or even, you know, I remember when you guys were doing Catalyst years ago, I remember Andy Stanley always talking about how vision leaks. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so how, how talk to me about if I'm a leader, I want to create or refresh vision in my organization. What are some key things I need to be doing? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's, Vision's kind of a word that's thrown around a lot and I'm not sure everybody really understands exactly what is it. And in, in many ways, if we're going to make it really simple, it's kind of like it's like it's, it, it could be where we're going might be a vision. It might be what we're trying to accomplish. Or another thing to think about, Pastor Chad, is, is a lot of people have kind of a what vision, but you might want to have a who vision, meaning not just what do I want to do, but who, who do I want to become? And so what it is, a vision is, is basically defining a destination or a result. What do we want to accomplish? What do we want to become? What do we... You know, not just what do we stand for, that would be a value, but what what are we going to make that's different in the world? And so you have to be really, really, really clear on this. 
And what's crazy is like if you went into a lot of churches or student ministries or businesses and asked 10 different employees, what's the vision? A couple of them might say, well, like I think there's a statement I heard or like I'm not really sure or it might be to make money or it might be they might give you some kind of churchy answer like I guess to, you know, make Jesus, to, you know, make disciples or something like that. But they're not really clear. And so the bottom line is, is you're never going to have people passionately moving in the same direction if they don't know what the direction they're going. It's ridiculously simple, but you will. It's it's embarrassing how often in our leadership we assume that everybody knows what we stand for, where we're going, and you will not see any ministry, any business, any organization that has it without a clear, compelling vision that is greater than the individual. It's never about what benefits us. It's about what makes a difference in this world. And in business, the great thing is you can even, you know, the, the you always want to make money in business, right? But you want to have a vision that goes beyond money because at some point that becomes empty. And so it's like we're going to impact lives this way. Or we're going to create the best customer service. Or we're going to be, bring you know, the most quality, safest product or whatever it is. But you, you have to have that compelling uh, force that drives you, that energizes you, that brings a why to the reason why you come to work every day. And that's the vision. You, you won't see anything that has it without a vision. Um, but just because you have a vision doesn't mean you're going to get it yet. There's there's actually more that goes goes to it. That's right. And, and, and you talk about that. You talk about, you know, d- d- your divine focus, that vision yes, and focus yes. go hand in hand. And I feel like, you know, that's one of the things that I'm always so inspired by you is that you're a very focused individual um, one thing I really appreciate about you is your time management. Um, mm-hmm. I remember having lunch with you in your offices and the, the, the lunch was there and you've talked about, you know, why would I spend time looking for an outfit for Sunday? There's a team of people that can help you just choose that we should do this one. And I, I feel like you've, mm-hmm. you've mastered a lifestyle of focus. You're a very intentional, deliberate person. How do vision, because I feel like, to be honest, mm-hmm. Vision's kind of the easy part for a lot of people. Mm-hmm, getting an idea, mm-hmm. getting a dream, creating a statement. You know, but it's it's like James Clear, Atomic Habits, you know, comes to mind. We don't fall to the, you know, to the we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our system. So how how do we keep how do we marry divine focus and vision? Because I feel like this, you know, a culture would say we've got million dollar dreams with hundred dollar work ethic. And I think what they're trying to say is we don't know how to have focus. This would be my concern with most leaders. Yeah, 100%. And so you, I appreciate the compliment. You said I've got great focus, great discipline, whatever. And the truth is I don't, meaning like naturally I, I don't at all. I, I want to eat everything that tastes good. I want to sleep in. I, you know, I, So what I have to do is I have to choose it. And a lot of times I think when we see somebody that is focused or, or is disciplined, we tend to think is natural, but because of our sinful nature, we're not ever naturally much that's good. And so, it so I don't want to I don't want someone to have an excuse or go. I'm not I'm not focused like Chad is. The reason Chad is is because he chose it. So what I have to do is is I have to choose it. I'm not always very good at it, and so that means I have to analyze it all the time. And here's the problem: is is when you have a vision, and then when you focus in on it, meaning. What we're not doing is we're not making just outcome goals, like here's what I want to accomplish, but instead we're doing input goals. Like these are the right inputs that typically create the outcomes. So we don't know, we don't, we can't control the outcomes, we can't control the input. So if I do these inputs, I'm likely to get the desired outcomes. When we focus on those, what happens is we get successful in whatever that means in your industry, your ministry, or whatever. We have growth. What does growth do? Growth creates complexity. 
and then complexity kills growth. So the whole time we've got this cycle of we're growing and then we're becoming more complex. And with growth comes options. And what do options do? Options tempt you to lose focus. For example, right now you have options that you didn't have five years ago because you've had more success. You can meet with more people. You can write more books. But by the way, speaking of books, speaking of books, I didn't want to bring it up. Chat, I, I, I can't. I can't. I can't bring this up. But you're bringing it up. No, no. I'm. I'm, I'm asking. I've, I, there's a rumor that if your prayer life is in trouble, if you if you try to pray and your mind drifts, if you can't really focus, if you feel guilty because you're not a good prayer, there's a rumor. Is the rumor true? It's very true. I'm stressed about everything that I don't pray about. That's just the bottom line. But when we pray, I've I've got a book coming out this month as well. And so, yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, thank you for writing the book on prayer. But back to my point, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't have the option to write a book. And if if you say yes to all the options you have now, writing a book for you is probably the right thing because of your the investment of your time can have a spiritual impact on more people. You write it once and it can impact people for years to come. But if you meet with everybody you can meet with, go to every place that invites you to speak, say yes to every kind of invitation, do every kind of dinner that comes, be on everybody's podcast that invites you to be on their podcast. And on what's going to happen is you're going to lose the focus on what made you special in the first place. And what tends to happen is as we grow, as we become more successful, we start to ask ourselves, can we do this? If someone asks us, can we do this? We tend to think, can we do it? And if we can, we often say yes. The right question isn't, could we do this? The right question is, should we do this? And and we have to ask that. And, and what we do, Pastor Chad, in our organization, we have what we call the four tiers of effectiveness. And we run everything through these tiers. And then we just recently, as a church team, took every video, every meeting, every content we create, every post that we make, every mission trip we do, every dollar that we spend, we took everything and run it through these four tiers and ask ourselves, are we living in the upper tiers or are we drifting to the lower tiers? And I'll give them to you real quick because they matter for focus. Tier number one is, is what is mission critical. Mission critical. So if you're the pastor of Zoe Church, is this podcast mission critical? No, it's important, but it's not mission critical. Tier two would be strategic but not mission critical. This would probably be a tier two, meaning it's very strategic, it's worth your time, you reach a lot of people, but it's not critical. Tier three would be important or even fun, but not even strategic. It's kind of like a value add. It's like, yeah, we could do it and it would make a difference. And you got a bazillion, whatever people listening or leading right now, you got a bazillion tier threes. Like, this is a good product, it's a good use of time, it's not bad, if we cut it, some people would be upset, we might lose a little bit of money, we like not have a ministry, it's not great, it's not horrible, it's okay. And then tier four is what I call external and, and generally not important. There are some external asks that are important or strategic, but generally not. That's the, can you do this please? Will you join me? Will you give to? Can I have your time? And most of those, are not gonna be strategic. Most of those don't contribute to the tier one. So what, what we wanna do is we wanna go through everything we do through the tiers. Is this mission critical? If it is, we have to do it. What happens is if we're not careful, we end up doing so many tier three or tier four things, we lose focus on tier one and that's a lack of focus. That's what happens, that's why a ministry that has it, an organization that has it, a team that has it becomes successful, they get more options, they lose focus and they lose it. And not only would I say, I've seen it done many times, it's happened in my life, it's happened in my leadership. We've got a uh, life church so-and-so, 
they've got it, they grow, they get complicated, they get options, they d d disperse their focus and they lose it. And that happens all the time. It takes, you don't grow with your yeses, you grow with your noes. Uh, true success isn't based on what you do, it's what you have the discipline to say no to, to say focus on the most important thing. So it's, we know it, but if we don't constantly work on it, we drift, we, no one drifts towards simplicity, nobody drifts toward focus. We drift towards complexity, we drift toward busyness, and so we have to be really intentional. So good. I love everything that you're saying here. And it also makes me just think about how was your focus tested in COVID? And I mean, just the whole, you know, the world just flipped upside down. And I felt like, you know, people that are leading an organization, they're, they're having to be focused at a, at a level that, you know, and, it, it, and what attention there, you're resting, you're at home, you're yes, yes. making cookies, and you're having mm -hmm. to focus at a level that you know, crisis we've never faced before. So what was that like for you and how was your focus tested? How, how, how did you lead through that? So, uh, you know, the part of the country I live in had probably more flexibility more often than, than the part of the country you live in. So you would have been locked down longer, which I think created more emotional challenges, more leadership challenges and such. I, I would say this, that it, this is kind of counterintuitive and some people would disagree, and I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but it's my theory that it was actually easier to lead during the time of kind of COVID crisis and all of the political and racial tension that we were navigating. I would say that it was really easier, in my opinion, for most leaders to lead then than it is now, and let me tell you why. Because when you're in the middle of the crisis, even if you're locked down at home, it, you know what's really important. For example, for you, when church had to close, you had to come up with some way to do church online. And that's about all you thought about was that. You had to get that out and do that. Then you had to figure out if people were giving and, you know, normally on the weekend, they couldn't do that. You, you got to figure out how do you pay the bills. And so in a time of crisis, you know, you got to act decisively. You've got to communicate frequently. So you ramped up the frequency and level and uh, directness of and intensity of your communication. And, you know, in any kind of, anyone who leads anything, you probably can serve cash because you don't know what's going to happen. Meaning like, if, is this boat going to keep floating? And so that's really clear. Now what we have, Chad, on what is kind of hopefully the other side of it is I think a lot of people are coming out with almost like a PTSD afterwards. Uh, some of their values have shifted. Like going, I actually think I like working in my pajamas rather than I do coming in the office. I like working flexible hours. And and there's also more complications at home, more people lost loved ones, there's more relational challenges, there's more addictions that have surfaced in, in the meantime. I mean, there are new issues in our world, challenging issues that like literally we weren't dealing with five years ago with our children and there are new issues or complicated issues that people are dealing with. And so I think now the intense, it, it, what tends to happen is, most of us have gone back to what I call like a pre-pandemic mindset. Like, I'll just go back and lead like I did before. And I think that's a mistake. This was what I was doing. And I recognize it takes more intentionality to lead out of a crisis than maybe it even does in a crisis. Because it's, when is the last time we've been in a two-year global crisis? Maybe World War II? Not, none of us have experience doing this. And so we have to, we have to, uh, we have to communicate way more frequently. We have to be hands-on. I, I tell our team, we have to act like we're onboarding our whole staff, meaning here's the vision again, let's drive it deep. Here's the values. Here's the why behind the what. So for me, it's, it is equally or more difficult and more intense right now. And most people wouldn't think of that. And I'd say if you're, if it's not for you, 
then you might want to change your mindset because leadership really it always matters and it really matters right now i couldn't i couldn't agree more i think it's today is hard 10 times harder than any moment in the last two years today and doesn't make sense it shouldn't it, on paper it feels like it shouldn't be but i think it is and we need to acknowledge that and the more people i talk to the more we see it and and so what does it take you don't you don't stumble out of a crisis you don't wander out of a crisis you don't change your mindset by accident it takes intentionality focus direction passion values it, it, it takes a lot of work that's exactly right and I, I got an update yesterday another four million people quit jobs in the month of march so this is not ending you know it, it, but, mm -hmm. but it is just the aftermath and um and so there's a great opportunity to lead people and that's what i want to talk about next one of the my favorite chapters that jumps out to me is having hearts that are focused outward which to me yes yes the best leaders in the world are servant leaders. Of course, you and I would agree, in our opinion, the greatest leader that ever walked the face of the earth is a guy named Jesus. How can mm -hmm. you not follow a guy that's like, I'm here to make you better. I live, <laughs> and I'm going to die for you. Um, Shackleton comes to mind as well, someone that had a heart that was focused outward. Yes, um, yes. Talk to me about this chapter, and, and, and how do we as leaders get there? Because, you know, someone said recently... Uh, in a narcissistic society, narcissism wins. Mm -hmm. And there's a total clash here because we live in a self-promoting narcissistic culture, and yet leadership is all about adding value and serving mm -hmm. others, equipping others. So, so talk to me about how do we develop this? Yes. So just for clarity, the book Lead Like It Matters is written to church leaders. Uh, it, but also, like I would just say to business leaders, I... Uh, I learn from business books every day, so I think the principles are transferable, but it is um, it is unmistakably, undeniably a Christ-centered book written to churches. So the the hearts focused outward, I would, t I would answer your question in two ways. One is, from my perspective as a pastor and a church leader, that means I have a heart for people whose lives are broken, who need the redemption of Jesus. So that's one level, and that really matters. You're not going to find a church anywhere that has it that's inward-focused, and the drift is toward stay away from them bad people, uh, just stay in here and us four no more, and let's just have our Christian, you know, that's the drift of churches. And so we don't naturally tend to care about those who are different. We uh, naturally distance ourselves, so we have to uh, intentionally be outward focused. Then I would say from just a practical leadership thing, and this would transfer to churches and, and businesses, is that the best leaders are 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 not me focused leaders, but they're they're like you said, they're servant minded, they're you focused leaders, and because of our, if I can be theological or just um, practical from a theological nature, because of our sinfulness, we're selfish by nature. Uh, if we look at it in a business world, just the more powerful we become, the more toxic our potential is. The more the more we can become narcissistic, and so. We have to understand that the trajectory of our lives is unfortunately towards self, not others. And if we're not daily dying to ourselves and daily focusing on others, we become a me-centered leader. And there is people, people will pay, take a paycheck from a me-centered leader, but they're not going to give their, their hearts to a me-centered leader. Uh, when we shift and take it to a higher level, and that's a you-centered leader, which is, and you do such a good job with this. I've seen you so many times where it's, you're not here to fulfill my vision, but I want to actually help you use your gifts to contribute to our vision. What matters to you? How can you make a difference? And you're literally caring about them. You're, you're bringing the best out of them. They'll, they'll give their heart to you. They'll give their life to you. They'll give more than, than you deserve when you care about them. 
And, and, and so that's kind of what we want to look at is both, you know, from a Christian standpoint is how do we focus on those who need the healing and the redemption of Jesus? And then as a leader, how do we um, not make ourselves look important, but really value the people that are important in our organization? And they are leaving. I read, I don't know if it's true, but you know, I read 50% or so are, con- are um, considering leaving their jobs. I don't think that's as bad as the people that um, quit on the inside and never leave meaning they're still there, but they're dead on the inside. And, and they're completely, that's, that's happening all the time. So what we want to do is we have to care about them. And if we care about them, help them be successful, help them make a difference, they're more likely to stay and then make a big difference. And I would just say one of the, one of the healthiest things you can do is work on high retention. And the only way you work on high retention is being a youth-centered, other-centered leader. That's it. That's it. How did you do this with your kids? Because I, I just love watching your family. I love you know, you. being around your children. It seems like they have caught your spirit and the way that you lead uh, your organization, but more importantly, your life and your family. What, what are some key parenting tricks? I'm asking selfishly for myself and any other parent that is listening today, because you, you're right. No, no one has ever taught a toddler how to say me and mine and not yes, want to yes. share with it. We're born this way. We're born selfish. So how did you do this with your children? And, and you have kids now. I see them. that They're just unbelievable people, unbelievable Thank leaders. You. What did you do? Thank you. So I love that question, and, and I can't take a lot of credit for it. The, uh, we have six children. My youngest is now just graduated, and they are all serving in the church. Their spouses are, I've got three of son-in-laws, they're all serve in full-time on the church. And they're all, they ridiculously love the church and they're, they're really good leaders. And so one is uh, Amy, my wife, home educated our kids, which I don't think home education is a superior form of education. It's just one form. But what it did is it gave her the ability to help pour values into them which is really hard to do in a different form of education. So you can, you can educate with knowledge, but as parents, we have, to, we have to train with values. And so what do we stand for? That really, really matters. And then no matter how many values you pour into them, if you don't pour into them with grace, it becomes legalism. And that's the fastest way to create rebellion. So you, you, have, to have, you have to have a sense of grace. If there's, wherever there's hypocrisy in the home, there's vulnerability always. And so the fastest way to turn a child away from God or away from the family is just hypocrisy. So what we're not looking for is perfection in the home. We're looking for honesty. And that really, really matters. So our home is very, very not perfect. But what we have is we're very, very honest. And so there's a lot of mistakes, but there's a lot of apologies, meaning there's a lot, lot, lot from me. Then with kids, what really, really influences them when they're little, you do. When they're older, who does? They're friends. And so this is so, so, so important. You cannot determine who their friends are, but you can determine to some degree what environments they're in. So what we want to do is we want to put them into the environments where they're most likely to be around the friends that are going to influence them in the right direction. So that means if they're like one year, we had a, uh, my boys were soccer players. There was a team that they were, they were my boys like uh, 14. The team was re- really had a wild, wild, wild group of kids that weren't heading in the right direction and they were their best soccer players. There was another league that weren't very good team, but they were great, great kids. 
So with even one of the most competitive guys you know, we took my son out, put him on a team that wasn't as good around the better kids. And I think it may have been one of the best decisions we've ever made. So you can't control who they run with, but to some degree, you can control the environments you put them in. And then obviously, I'm biased toward the church that whenever they grow up in the church, what we don't want it to do is we don't want the church to ever compete with the family. We want the family to be incorporated into the church and the church to be incorporated in the family. And so um, what I wanted to do with them is as early as I could, this sounds counterintuitive, but I wanted to give them a job at the church, meaning early on it was pick up trash and you get a free soft drink from the church because we don't get soft drinks at home because Amy's never allowed a soft drink in her home. So pick up all the trash in the church and you get a soft drink. So what they're doing is they're getting some ownership. And when we, when they, when the church becomes theirs, where they choose to go, and when does it become theirs? Often whenever they're needed and when they're known. If they're needed to do something, they feel important. If they're known, they feel valued. And so if we, if we let, help the church become theirs, then they're a part of it. They're more likely to be around the right people, although there are often some people that aren't necessarily the right people in church. But at least they're in a community where there's accountability, there's correction, there's love. And so long answer, but but it's, it's really important who they're around, values, grace, um, relationship, talk about everything. I mean everything, everything, everything. And secret secret question, the secret question, my favorite question is, what are your friends, uh, how, how are your friends doing with porn? How are your friends doing with alcohol? How are your friends doing? They, I don't ask my kids, how are you doing? But how are your friends doing? And they talk, they talk about their friends. And that's a big Well, you know, Dad, Timmy's got a big problem. I'm doing great. Timmy. Yes, yes, yes. But it, it tells, you, tells you who they're with and often gives you insight. And then when you don't judge their friends and you don't go, oh, my gosh, that's horrible, but you show grace and then you create a safe environment to where they're more likely to talk about it, that tends to go really, really well. The communi- open communication, trust, safe place for them to be imperfect matters so much. Um, if we if we're legalistic and harsh, then they go to where they're accepted, and so they're accepted unconditionally in our home. But we also have values that matter, and um, you put all that together, you get a lot of lot of prayer, a lot on your knees, and and, and you, then you'll still go through some rough years always. But hopefully, you'll end up in a special place. It's amazing. I I. I You've written 15 books, correct? Is this number 15? Something, something yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe something like that. Have you written a parent one yet? No, I don't think I ever will. I, 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 I don't. I, we joked about it when we were young. Like, there's no way when we're young. And uh, I honestly don't. The, our kids are something to be really proud of, but I don't, think, I don't think I can explain why. I think there were factors that were well beyond our parenting that contributed to it. And I think any truly good parents will recognize that it takes so much more than us. So I don't, I don't think I ever will write a book on that. Um, Amy probably be better qualified than I would be. Well, I, I just, I tell you, there's, there's a two families that I, you know, that I'm looking at. I'm looking at yours, of course, and, and the great job you guys have done, and then the Durans, which, of mm-hmm. course, raised up, you know, Don Cherie and and, and yeah, all yeah. these uh, athletic, godly, incredible boys. And, you know, as a, as a parent, we've got 10, 8, 6, 4. So we're in yep. the throes yep. of it, of really forming and shaping these young humans. And so any any advice that you have, I'm, I'm all ears. I want to ask you one last question. 
Uh, and, and I just love this book. I can't wait to jump into it. You write not only about hearts that are focused outwards, but you also talk about, you talk about innovative minds. And yeah, to me, yeah. this is a hallmark of your leadership. I mean, obviously you guys created an app that has, I, I don't know what the number is uh, currently today, but a ridiculous amount of downloads that you guys have stayed current and changed so many times. You've done that with your church. You've done that with your mm -hmm, podcast mm -hmm. and just constantly reinventing constant. How do you, because to me, you strike me as a very linear leader and, and you're so good that way. Um, how do you, creatives, you know, sometimes these two worlds don't, most, most leaders wouldn't think that they go together, but in my opinion, they really do. They're essential. How do you develop an innovative mindset yourself and, and, and invite those kind of people around you? So that your, your question just answered it and it's perfect. How do you develop an innovative mindset? That's perfect. And how do you bring those people around you? Perfect. You, you answer the question with those two things. You, it's a mindset and people period. So I'm going to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm not. Uh, so our church was named most innovative church years ago for a couple of years by one of the Christian magazines because we created, we were truly first or second, probably second to do video teaching and probably first to do it well. Uh, we were the first, to my knowledge, to do multi-site. There were actually others doing it. We just didn't know. And we created the first central organization. We created most of the language around it. We did it really well. We created the world's first church online. We ended up, People hated it until the pandemic, and then we had over 50,000 churches using it. We started giving away free resources long before churches did that. We um, created the YouVersion Bible app on like 540 million devices now. So obviously, I'm incredibly innovative, correct? No. I came up with exactly zero of those ideas, not a single one, not one, not a single one, not, and I argued against them in the early years. So it's not me, nowhere close to it. And your question was right, innovative mindset, so it starts with mindset, and what we tend to think about innovation is we think we need more to be innovative, and you need a different mindset. More does not create more innovation, more creates laziness, more creates dependency, more creates sloppiness, less it actually creates it. Who are the most innovative businesses? Those that don't have a lot. They start with nothing because they have to innovate. And so people have always said, where God guides, he provides. I would say sometimes where God guides, he withholds. Like literally, if he gave you everything you wanted, then you wouldn't be thinking creatively. And so multi-site was born out of a limitation, meaning we couldn't fit everybody, so we tried it in somewhere else. Video teaching was born out of a limitation because I couldn't be there after Amy gave birth, and so we ran the video from the night before, just tried an experiment. Uh, Uversion Bible app, we were trying to engage people in the Bible, and they weren't coming to our website. They came out with apps, so we took the Bible to them with apps. It was, it, it was something it had never been done before. We released it on the very first day apps came out. We were not the best. We just happened to be the first. And so how did that happen? It was people, all people, 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 people around me. I, I, I have a mindset of how to recognize and how to experiment and how to go with it. But I'm not great at recognizing great ideas, meaning there's a hundred ideas that I thought were great that we tried that I'm not bragging about right now because they weren't, they weren't good ideas. So if you want to be innovative, you don't, you don't have to be the creative. You have to have the right mindset. You also have to have the right people 100%. And then another thing that nobody tends to think about is you have to have margin to be innovative. So I don't have a five-year plan. Here's the creative things we're going to do. What I have is I have budgeted margin for opportunities I cannot predict. I want to say it again. I have budgeted margin for opportunities I cannot predict. 
We didn't predict the YouVersion Bible app. We put, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into that when we, when we created it, uh, you know, hundreds of millions now. Uh, but in the early years when we had the idea, we had the margin to do it. How many people have the idea but not the margin? So you have to have the mindset. You have to have the people. You have to have the margin. And then the last thing is you, you have to have a high tolerance for failure, period. Because most of the ideas you do aren't going to be good ones. So the only ones I bragged on today, remember this, were the ones that someone else came up with, were the ones that we had the margin to try, and were the ones that I'm that didn't fail that I'm not I'm conveniently not telling you about today. So none of that makes me great. It's not about me. It's about people. It's about how you think. It's about planning for those opportunities, and it's about being willing to try something. Well, I'm looking forward to your book on on prayer. My gosh. Well, I, yeah, we'll definitely send you a copy, and and uh, we'll celebrate together in the month of August. We we've got to have a, a joint book party release. August is a big month for book releases in the Veach Groeschel world. That's right. Yeah, we're yeah. meeting up somewhere. We're working out. We're celebrating. Let's we're not going to let Amy know that we're having soft drinks, but we'll have a soft drink, one or two, and uh, and we'll have a great time. But again, thank you so much for not just writing this book and all the other books, but thank you for being innovative. Thank you for having your the arrows of your heart pointed out towards others and, and staying focused. And everything that you've written about in these chapters, you live this life. That's why there's thank so you, much authority on it. And uh, I just, I can't wait to learn more from you and spend more time together somehow, somewhere, some way. Hey, back, back to you, man. I love you, love your family, have so much respect and admiration for you. And, and uh, congratulations on your book release. And, uh, and, and I am sincerely thankful for your friendship. Best. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Pastor.